Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. If you've been with us either in person or online, hello to our Facebook church family. And we've been working our way through Matthew. We've seen a lot of big things happen. We've seen the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness baptizing people to prepare the way for Jesus. We've seen Jesus emerge on the scene publicly as an adult for the first time in the book of Matthew. We've seen him get baptized. We've heard that voice from heaven ring out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We saw him go out into the wilderness and battle the tempter after 40 days of fasting, and he was successful. We've seen all this happen. And now when we get into verse 12, When we read it, you're going to scratch your head and wonder if we missed a passage or if we missed something. I don't know if you've ever been reading a novel and you've kind of phased out for a couple of pages and then all of a sudden you realize what's happening doesn't seem to make any sense anymore and you have to flip back and try to figure out what's going on. You might feel like that when we get to verse 12, but you haven't missed anything. Let's read verse 12 together. This is right after he successfully fights off the devil, the tempter in the wilderness. Verse 12, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now what? John got arrested? The last we left John, he was out with his thriving ministry of baptism and preaching out in the wilderness. Crowds of people coming out to him. Extremely fruitful ministry out there. That's the last we heard about John in the book of Matthew. And now all of a sudden he's arrested? Now, we know from other passages of Scripture why he was arrested. He had confronted power with the truth. He had confronted King Herod with some immorality, and it got him in trouble. But here, Matthew just, he just throws that out there without any explanation whatsoever. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. For Matthew, the headline isn't John's arrest. It's the geography of Jesus' movements. In fact, if you have maps in the back of your Bibles, uh, the Pew Bibles do not have maps. I actually checked, but you may in your personal Bible have maps back there. I have one called uh, Palestine in the Time of Jesus. You might actually want to flip back there and get that in front of you for the next verse. Because for right now, Matthew is fully focused on geography for a minute. So I'm going to read verse 12 again, but we're going to go on into verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So as I read this, I can't help but picture those montages in Indiana Jones where Indiana Jones is going to go to wherever the site of the adventure is, and so they play the Indiana Jones music, and there's a map overlaid over the image, and you see this red line charting his course. I see, once again, I'm making a movie reference that doesn't really connect with everybody in the room, but that's what I picture. Yes, John was arrested. I'm sure that's interesting, but that's not the point of the passage for Matthew. The point is the geography. He goes from Judea, where he was in the wilderness and all that, 
up to Galilee, specifically in Nazareth. And then from Nazareth, he goes over to the, to the top of the sea there in Capernaum to what is known as Zebulun and Naphtali. By the way, Zebulun and Naphtali, these were two of the 12 tribes. If you think back to the book of Joshua, when they finally get into the promised land, he starts divvying out the land to the different tribes. This is where these two tribes settled. Now, if you're, if you're like me, you're not a historian, your geography doesn't always stick in your mind, and you might be thinking, well, who cares? I mean, we wouldn't say that because it's God's word, and we're, we're more reverent than that, but somewhere inside you might be thinking, who cares about the geography of what's going on? Well, it's important, and there's a reason that, that Matthew is emphasizing this so much. Let's just keep reading into verse 14. Okay, so 13, Jesus, leaving Nazareth, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So the reason he's emphasizing all this is because here again, Jesus fulfills ancient prophecy, just like Matt mentioned, from Isaiah, nearly 700 years before. That's why it's significant. The big idea in the book of Matthew, remember he was writing to a a Jewish audience. The big idea is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior King that our people have been waiting for for hundreds of years and for generations. That's the point. That's the big idea. That's why he started off with the genealogy. That's why he emphasized the virgin birth. Bethlehem, the murdered children, Jesus being in Nazareth, John the Baptist as the forerunner. All of these things were prophesied, and Jesus fulfilled them. So he is the Messiah. Now, it's not just geographic what he fulfills. Let's read verses 15 and 16, and we get to the real heart of this passage and what it means for us and what it is exactly that Jesus is fulfilling here. Here is the prophecy quoted from Isaiah, starting in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is the heart of it. So if all the geography caused you to glaze over a little bit, go ahead and come on, rouse yourself here. This is really the heart of it for us this morning. Now, initially, when I was preparing for this sermon, I saw light and darkness, and I know these are major themes throughout the whole Bible, and in the New Testament especially, it's really rich the way the Bible uses this imagery of light and darkness. And so I actually did, I have pages of notes where I went through and I wrote down every verse in the New Testament that deals with light and darkness. There's so much gold there, and I had this complicated mass of stuff to try to hand over to you today. But at some point in the midst of all that, I remembered, I can't just jump on these two words. I need to go back and remember what this prophecy is talking about. So it's from Isaiah chapter 9, and what we find when we look back there 
is that the darkness that this is talking about and the light that this is talking about isn't moral in nature. He's not talking about the darkness of immorality and Jesus being the the bright light of, of moral purity. And it's not therapeutic. He's not talking about the darkness of just feeling depressed and, and down and Jesus bringing the light of happiness. It's something else. When we look back into Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, which we're not going to go and read it. I'm just going to tell you about it. What we see there is that God's people, ancient Israel, they were about to be horribly defeated and conquered and exiled because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. They were about to experience a certain type of darkness. And that passage uses darkness quite a bit, but it explains itself. And he's talking about the darkness of being lost. God's people were going to be lost because they had rejected God's word and God himself. They were turning to mediums and and pagan things for direction because they had rejected God's word. And so it was going to be as if they were in the dark. They weren't going to know what was true. And in that godless situation, they were going to experience all kinds of distress and hunger and rage and contempt and frustration. They were going to hate their human leaders. They were going to ignore God. There was going to be complete societal breakdown and anarchy. That's the darkness that Isaiah was talking about. But then as you get into chapter 9, there's this, this hope. This ray of hope appears. Something was going to happen in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. It was going to be kind of like the light. It was going to be kind of like the sun rising after a long, dark night. He goes on to describe this light was going to bring about a multiplication of the nation. The nation was going to become strong again. The nation of Israel was going to become strong again and spread and grow There's going to be an increase of joy among God's people. There's going to be a freedom and release from their their oppressors, their enemies who would conquer them. There would be an end to war and bloodshed. And as you read on down, you get into the territory that you hear a lot at Christmas time. What is this light that's going to come? How is this going to come about? A child was going to be born. A son was going to be given. The government was going to be on this son's shoulder. His name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There would be no end to this individual's kingdom expansion. There would be no end to this individual's kingly reign. And as his kingdom reigned forever and continued to expand, there'd be no end to the peace that God's people would experience under his rule. Now, these promises were precious to God's people, and they had never been fully fulfilled until now, until what is beginning to happen in Matthew chapter 4. So the light that our passage is referring to isn't primarily about morality or therapeutic comfort. It's national. It is the national hope that God's people had been hanging on to by a thread for generations. This is what Palm Sunday was all about. This is what the confusion was all about. 
When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, humble on that little donkey, the Jews by that time had, had pretty well accepted, this is it. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the son who was going to be given. This is the child who was going to be born. This is the one who's going to carry the government on his shoulder. This is the king whose kingdom was never going to stop expanding. And is going to, he's going to reign forever. And we're finally going to have peace. And we're going to be freed from our oppressors, which in this case was the Romans. And so they were thrilled when they saw him entering Jerusalem. And they were grabbing palm branches and waving them and laying them down, and they were just freaking out. It's at last, our nation is going to be established again in peace under this good king. And they were both right and wrong. They were right that he is the long-awaited Savior King. But they were wrong about the nature of his kingdom. It was going to be way bigger than they realized. It was going to be about more than just the Jewish people. He was going to be the king who was finally going to expand the kingdom beyond the Jews to also the Gentiles, all the other nations of the world. He was going to be the king of every tribe, tongue, and nation of all those who would repent and follow him. And so that's why they turned on him. When they saw him basically surrender himself to be killed by the Romans, I mean, you put yourself in their sandals and you would have to have come to the same conclusion. Well, we thought this was it. We thought for sure this was it. We thought this was our king. We were finally going to get this nation up and running again, but clearly we were wrong because he's being put to death. And so they turned on him in a second. They, they didn't have any, any qualms about it. They've just figured, well, we're just waiting for a different guy. Back to our passage in Matthew 4. We know, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, what is going on here. Yes, Jesus is fulfilling this. Now, if you were there, you would have thought, he, he's about to, in our last verse, verse 17, he's about to begin preaching for the first time. Now, you might have thought his message would be different from what it was. You know, John had just been arrested. Up to Jesus, John was really probably the most famous leader of, of the movement that would lead into Jesus, you might have thought Jesus as the coming king would say, I am here, it's time to establish the kingdom, arm yourselves. First thing we're going to do is go free John from prison, and then we're going to take this thing over. We're going to reestablish our authority here in the promised land, so get ready. But that's not what he says in verse 17, our final verse. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and submit to the kingdom of heaven. It's here, it is time. Now, I did have, I have pages now in the trash can of complicated application of this passage for us. And I've wrestled with it all the way up to this morning and finally just chopped all that out. And really all I have for you is a pretty simple application from this passage. I know 
that it is extremely disturbing and distressing to see the level of darkness that seems to be growing across our land. I know what we are seeing on the news is dark, and I know that it is disturbing. Some of you may need to watch less news, for one thing. Don't turn it on in the morning and leave it on all day. There's lostness, there's distress, there's rage, there's contempt, there's frustration. There's godlessness, there's societal breakdown. It's not the first time. It's what was going on in Isaiah's time. It's what was going on in Matthew's time. It's what's going on around the world quite a bit. My simple application for us this morning is that Jesus is still the great light. Jesus is still the national hope. And the message is still, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the Jewish people got confused, and we can sympathize with them, Because what they saw around them was the tangible stuff of life. And they thought the king was going to fix, with a tangible kingdom, then and there, what they were seeing and the oppression they were facing. It would be just as easy for us also to get confused. And wonder, why is Jesus letting this happen to America? As American Christians, it would be very easy for us to get confused. But just like the Jewish people had to realize Jesus is about a kingdom bigger than just the Jewish people. He is also about a kingdom bigger than just the American Christians. We may not understand what all he is allowing to take place right now, but we can know that King Jesus is the light. He is the national hope. And by that I mean because he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. I don't mean that he is going to right all the wrongs in America. We want that. We hope that. We pray for the best. We want to have the most influence we can as the light in a dark world. But our true hope is that the great light, Jesus Christ, is on his throne over the kingdom of heaven, which is ever-expanding, will never stop, will never be defeated, And as that kingdom expands, as more and more people around the world are added to his citizenship, there will be no end to his peace that expands with his rule and reign. When we see darkness, let us not be surprised. Let it strengthen us. Let it strengthen our our gratitude for the great light, King Jesus, that we have been granted citizenship in his kingdom. Let it strengthen our determination to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven under King Jesus and to be his representatives of light, his emissaries, his ambassadors here in this dark world. Let it strengthen our boldness 
And we need Christians in every sector of society, including in the political world. We need that. We want that. But let us never forget that the message still is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as much as the world needs our input, enlightened by the truth of God's word, in every sphere, the main thing the world needs is the good news of King Jesus. The world needs evangelism more than it needs our pontification about politics. Now continue to to speak truthfully about those things, but don't let it overwhelm the primary message we've been given, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we see the darkness on the TV screens, what those people need most of all isn't better laws. Better laws are great, but what they need to do is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let the darkness strengthen our identity as citizens of God's kingdom. Let's remember who we are, who we serve. Our king is on the throne, as as everybody attested to in the scripture readings leading up to the sermon. The plan is still in place. The kingdom is unstoppable. So be encouraged. I think that really is is why I threw out all the complicated applications. I think really the, the bottom line, be encouraged. King Jesus is on the throne. He did arise from the grave. He is still the great light. On us a light has dawned. We can be at peace. No matter what happens, we can be stable. Our security is completely accomplished. It is completely unbreakably secured in Jesus Christ. It can seem sometimes these days like it's starting to not be a great time to be a Christian in America. It's starting to feel like it's getting a little bit difficult. Our cultural influence seems to be getting pushed to the margins. Our Christian morality is beginning to just be rejected by and large. Starting to feel like, man, this is, this is not like the good old days anymore. I think it's really a very, it's a great time to be a Christian in America. It's a great time because we know the great light. And in all this darkness, that's what everybody needs. So we can go from here into this world, and, and it is dark, and there's a lot of dark stuff going on. But we are citizens of the kingdom of light. So be encouraged, be joyful, be at peace, be secure. Jesus is on the throne. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I am so grateful for Jesus Christ. It can be hard. Oh, man, it can be hard to live in light of these intangible realities of Jesus' reign and rule as the King of heaven and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I pray that you would help us to do that this week. Help us to remember who he is and who we are as his citizens. Lord, would you please strengthen every one of us. Give us great wisdom. Help us to be fruitful ambassadors of your kingdom in this world. 
Lord, give us wisdom in every conversation, in every social media post, in every uh, time that we are processing the news story that we just heard on the radio or watched on the news or read in the paper. Help us to think in light of the truth. Help us to be salt and light in this world. And help us to point people to Jesus. I pray that this week you would give us real open-door opportunities for evangelism. That it would be unmistakable, as scared as we sometimes are to speak up about you, and it's so much easier to talk about other things, would you give us the boldness? Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to point people to the great light. In Jesus' name, amen.